Okay, friends, the story begins. This is exciting. We are on the bottom of page 71. So last week, we gave an introduction to the song of the day. Every single day, a new chapter of Tehillim is recited. It's a weekly schedule, and it corresponds to that particular day of the week. The original source of this was the Levites in the Beit HaMikdash, in the temple. They would be on the platform, on the stage, they were singing. That was part of the service. As the korbanot, as the, the, service, as the sacrifices were taking place by the Kohen, the Kohanim, the Levites would be there singing. The Kohen's job is to channel God's energy, uplift, inspire, and, and bring up. The Levite's job is to channel downward. They're both important. Right? The Kohen is about chesed. The Levite is about discipline. And the song, the singing was that discipline, was the channeling down, was how they were channeling God down into this world. And every single day, a new song was sung in correspondence with that day. And this is... Sundays. Sundays is bottom of page 71. It's a chapter of Psalms taken from uh, chapter 24 of Psalms. It's a direct cut and paste from chapter 24 of Psalms. By the way, Psalms was authored by King David. So what were the Levites singing prior to King David authoring this? <laughs> because I mean, they there there was singing. This didn't take place before King David, and certainly before his authorship. So it, it's similar to prayer, just like prayer had no specific text. At some point, it was necessary to write a specific text. At some point, they adopted King David's text, but it was more, I guess, freestyle praise to God. So let, let's start like this. Let's read the psalm. And what we're going to do is explore how it corresponds to Sunday, how, what it represents about Sunday. More importantly, why do I care? <laughs> what does this mean to me? And that, that's really the most important part of, of these discussions. So let's first read through the psalm. It's on the bottom of 71. It's the last, page, uh, last paragraph. By David, a psalm, the earth, and all therein is the Lord's, the world and its inhabitants. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not used my name in vain nor sworn falsely. Again, we're going to unpack this and see what this really means. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and kindness from God, his deliverer. Such is the generation of those who search for him. The children of Jacob who seek your countenance forever. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up eternal doors, so the glorious king may enter. Who is the glorious king? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, eternal doors, so the glorious king may enter. 
who is the glorious king, the Lord of hosts, who is the glorious king for all eternity. Okay, quite mysterious. <laughs> it seems quite euphemistic. We're referring to something here. What's going on here? What's taking place? So the Talmud actually says that what is the connection of this to Sunday? What happened on Sunday? What happened on day one of creation? Right, The world is, had been created. The, the, the Let me take a step back. The seven-day work week is not arbitrary. It's not random. Otherwise, it'd be probably 10, right? There's 10 fingers. 10 is a more convenient number. We usually do things in sequences of 10s. Why is the week a seven-day work week? And the reason is because the world has been created in seven days. And what happened Sunday? The beginning of creation. You know what happened on Sunday, the first day of creation? You know what the first thing God created was? The, the heavens. What's the light and dark? So there's light and dark, there's the heavens, but in order for those to exist, you need some sort of... Firmament? Uh, what? Space for that to, to, take, to take place. Is that the firmament? So you need, you need two things for this to exist. In order for us to exist, you need time, you need space, and you need them simultaneously. Because if you don't have space, where is this going to happen? Where is the heavens and the earth and the light going to take place? And if you don't have time, when is it going to happen? So you need time and space at the same time. You know what those two things equal? Time and space? Independence. If you have time and you have space, your own time, your own space, you have independence. If you have independence but you're under the domination of someone else's time. You don't really have independence, right? If you have space, sorry, and you don't have your own time, you don't really have independence. If you have all time in the world, but no space, right? You're living on somebody else's property. You have no independence. The first thing God created is a sense of independence. There cannot be existence as we know it without there being a sense of independence. A sense of separation. Now, in reality, nothing is really separated from God. But perceptually, our perceptual reality, we are very distant and removed and independent from God. In fact, the Hebrew word for world, olam, can also mean concealment from the word helam. So in order for our world to exist, there must be this concealment of God, this independence from God. And what this chapter of Psalms tells us, by David, a psalm, the earth and all therein is the Lord's. The world is and its inhabitants. Everything is God's. Yes, perceptually, it seems separate. Perceptually, it seems independent. King David says, I'm here to tell you a secret. It ain't. It ain't separate from God. It's not independent from God. It's very much a part of God. It seems separate from God. Now, I'm what I'm telling you right now is very radical. Because I'm very much telling you not to trust what you see. Trust King David. <laughs> trust Abraham. Trust Moses. 
trust the patriarchs. That is um that is a bold statement. Don't trust what you see. Almost cultish. Um that doesn't make it not true. Right? The Torah actually says, don't stray after your eyes and after your heart. Just because we see something, because it appears a certain way, doesn't mean that's the reality. And we know that in our world of media. We unfortunately, especially as Jews, especially as um, we know that all too well, that just because things are painted in a certain way, that doesn't make it so, that doesn't make it the truth. There is a greater reality beyond what our eyes share with us, beyond what our eyes see. Um, the way I heard it worded recently, I, I love this. Your eyes don't see. Your brain see. Your brain sees. Sorry. Your brain sees. Your brains see. Um, your eyes don't see. Your brain sees. Your eyes are just the input. Right, the brain is the monitor, but the eyes are not the sole tool by which we see. There's an interpretation process. So I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Words. Words are just random shapes and characters. That's what the eye says. The brain says no. These shapes and characters are not random. These are messages. You see the difference? One is seeing with your eyes. One is seeing with your brain. If you look at words and just see random letters, you're looking with your eyes. And that's more likely to happen if you don't know the language, right? Um, if you look at words and letters and see a message, you see communication, you're seeing with your brain. If we look at this world and just see a world... Just by what, uh, and we're satisfied with what meets the eye. An independent world, a world that is disconnected from God, we are seeing with our eyes. We believe there's meaning and purpose. We're seeing with our brain and perhaps even with our soul, which influences the brain. You see what I'm getting at here? The very first thing we need to do when entering this world is recognize that it's it's God's world. In the beginning of creation, God created the heavens and the earth. The world was empty and desolate. The world seemed like it was separate from God and empty of God, a void of God. So what's the first thing God did? He said, let there be light. And guess what there was afterwards? Light. And the Kabbalists point out that this cannot be referring solely to a physical light. It's actually referring to spiritual light as well, divine light. God hid himself, but allowed some of that light to seep in. Enough for us to exist, and hopefully, it, it, it's like a teacher. You know what a sign is? A sign of a good teacher. You know what a good teacher does? A good teacher doesn't tell you everything. A good teacher has so much to say, but is 
going to take time to to think about it and say, what am I going to not share? Can't share everything. Right? A good teacher is revealing, but selectively revealing. So God, like that teacher, selectively reveals. And sometimes he reveals more. Miracles. Sometimes he reveals less. Tragedies. But God is always revealing. On a very small scale. In a way where he seems quite absent. In a way where if we wanted to appreciate that this is him, we would have to be very open-minded. The very first thing we need to do in, in, in the, on a Sunday, which is day one of creation, and the very first thing we're experiencing, day one of creation, independence, separation, is, no, it's not really independent. It just looks that way. You guys with me? Um, I'm, I'm, I'll share with you a story. This is a repeat story, but I love it. It's really one of my favorite stories. Rabbi Shalom Doivber of Lubavitch, known as the Rebbe Roshab. So going back about 150 years ago, he was traveling from the town of Lubavitch to another town. He was actually going to like a resort city. He had health issues and he had to go to some sort of resort for to, to recover. He was carpooling with another Jewish guy. This guy happened to have been a heretic. You have a rabbi and a heretic carpooling together in their horse and wagon. It's going to make for interesting conversation. And they're getting into their debates. Does prophecy really exist? Do angels really exist? Are these metaphorical? Could the Torah really be referring to these things? How is it possible? It doesn't seem to be scientifically sound. And they're both taking their positions. And finally, the heretic says, Rabbi, you don't see it. I don't see it. How could you possibly believe in this? So he says, the Rebbe Shab tells him, there are three characters here. There's you and I. There is the wagon driver, the horse driver, uh, uh, what do you call him? The, not the conductor. The, uh, is there a name for it? Uh, I'd be lying if I said I knew what that name is. Oh, man. Okay. Stagecoach. There's the stagecoach dude, yeah. and there's the horse. Three characters. Interview us. Somebody were to ask us, where are you going? What are you doing? We're going to a resort. We're going to take care of our health. We're going to recuperate. We're going to recover. Ask the stagecoach dude, where, um, where are we going? Like why why are you doing this journey? I get paid. Doesn't really care about the destination. He might not even know about the destination. He might not even know it's a resort. He knows that there's an address. That's it. Ask the horse, why are you doing this? I don't want to get whipped. I want to get some hay. Which one is correct? Technically, they're all technically correct. But which one is the most true? Right? The ones going to the resort. That's the ultimate purpose of this journey. If they weren't going to a resort, you wouldn't have a horse 
stagecoach guy getting paid and you wouldn't have a horse getting hay. So it's all centers around the purpose. The horse won't see that purpose. So he says, if you're saying that you don't see it, it must not be true. You have horse vision. The animal soul vision. It's time for human vision. It's time for the divine soul vision. It's time to broaden our mind. It's time to realize what this world is really about. It's God's world. It's a divine world. And when Sunday starts, when the beginning of creation starts, when the beginning of independence starts, a feeling of separation from God, as if he's not present, even though he is, we remind ourselves the earth and all therein is the Lord's, the world and its inhabitants. Let me give you the background to this chapter of Psalms, the historical background. It was composed by King David, as much of Psalms was, but when? Remember all the gate references? Who's going to come up to the gate? The Lord shall enter the gates, open the gates, right toward the end of the chapter. So King David composed this prayer when they were, for the first time, ushering, uh, um, escorting the Ark of the Covenant in, into the Holy of Holies. When they were bringing the Ark into the Holy of Holies for the very first time, that's when they recited this. This, this is very significant. Because the significance of the Holy of Holies and specifically the Ark. I mean, let, let's let's take a step back over here. God reveals himself at Sinai. And we all have a very spiritual experience. An unhumanly spiritual experience. To the point that the Jews said, Moses, we can't handle this. Can you just communicate to God and convey the message to us? Because we can't handle it. And that's what Moses did. But God says, well, now I have this dilemma. On the one hand, I want to reveal myself to you. On the other hand, you can't handle it. Okay, so we found Moses, but now you don't have a relationship with me. Directly. How are you going to experience me? So immediately after the giving of the Torah, God said, we're going to build a temple. We're going to build a Beit HaMikdash. Started with the tabernacle. Started with the temporary Beit HaMikdash. But now we're going to build a Beit HaMikdash. We're going to build this center where I'm going to be revealed. You'll come to me when you're ready. And there are various degrees of revelation, of experience in this Beit HaMikdash. The pinnacle of it, the, the most sacred time and space was Yom Kippur in the Holy of Holies, the Kohen Gadol. The whole it, it was like an intimate relationship. The whole the right person at the right place at the right time. That's what intimacy is. And that's what we experienced with God. That was in the Holy of Holies. And in order to have that experience there, part of that was having the Ark of the Covenant together with the tablets and the Torah there. So bringing this Ark into the Holy of Holies for the first time is very significant. There's a commentary on the book of Tehillim, known as the Malbim. And he goes so far as to say that this event was so significant that it actually represented the entire purpose for which God created the world in the first place. Because why did God create the world? It seems like a... Remember we said the creation is all about independence? Hiding God? The word olam means concealment. So why would God do that? Why would God hide himself? 
so we can reveal him. There can be a revelation and an experience of God in a place where it seems most unlikely. That's the whole purpose of creation. And that's actually how the world started. The Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve you know, had this open conversation with God, but their sin kind of messed it up. We got it back at Mount Sinai. It was temporary. Our sins messed it up. We finally got it back at the Beit HaMikdash. We'll talk about, you know, we don't have that Beit HaMikdash now. We'll talk about how we could have it now soon. But we finally had it back at this Beit HaMikdash. And bringing the Ark in at the first time was that sacred moment, was that special moment. Right, when it says, uh, if you go to page 72, third line of the page, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up eternal doors so the glorious king may enter. This is talking about bringing that ark in. Who is the glorious king? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. It wasn't just a physical ark. It was what the ark represented. It wasn't just the tablets in the ark. It's what the tablets represented. It wasn't just the Torah. It was what the Torah represented. That, that's in general how communication works, by the way. You never want to just listen to what's being said. You want to listen to who's saying it. You don't want to just appreciate what people give you, who's giving it to you. Right? There's a relationship here. So this was the ultimate point in history where for the third time in history, I shouldn't say the third time, it happened a few other times, the splitting of the sea, but the Garden of Eden, Mount Sinai, a few times in history, Finally, heaven and earth can touch at this exact point in the Holy of Holies. And by, by the way, that's why the Ark didn't take up any space. The Talmud says that the Ark, you can measure the Ark, you can measure the space in the Holy of Holies. Yet were you to measure both sides of the Ark, you'd notice that the Ark took up no space because it was a true revelation of God who is beyond time and space. And we recite this prayer on a Sunday. We recite this prayer as a reminder that yes, there's this independence, but we got to bring the ark into our lives. We got to bring inspiration. We got to bring a revelation of God into our lives. So on, let, let's talk about this on a very personal level, on a more personal level. Going back to the, the uh, responsibility of building a temple, a home for God. It says, "V'asuli mikdash, make for me a sanctuary, v'shachanti betocham, and I'll dwell in." Anybody remember the text? I'll dwell in. It it should say it. That would have been the grammatically correct way of saying it. Make for me a temple, and I'll dwell in it. But the commentaries point out that what it actually says, the text reads, "Make for me a temple, and I'll dwell in them." Betocham, not betocho, not in it, but in them. Implying that God doesn't want to just dwell in the physical temple. He wants to dwell within us. He wants every individual to be a temple. He wants every single one of us to be a space where God can be experienced in our hearts, in our minds, our hands. He wants to become a part of us. That's what the commentaries explain. 
So we have to bring in the Holy of Holies into our own selves. We have to have this moment where there's this seamlessness between heaven and earth in our own hearts, where we can appreciate that the world is not really separated from God. It really is part of God. It's bringing the ark. That's what this prayer is about. There's a world of independence, and we can make it more transparent and 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 um, and seamless and connected. How do we do that? Like it sounds sounds good. <laughs> Sign me up. How do we? <laughs> how do we do it? How do we make ourselves a home for God? So the first thing we need to do, take a look at the text here. Um, let, let's go back to 71, bottom of the page. Third line of this paragraph. You see it? Where it says, it's, it's the middle of the line where it says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? The mountain of the Lord is holy places referring to the Temple Mount. Who gets to go there? Right? There's limited access. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not used my name in vain or sworn falsely, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord. Who gets to go into the Temple? People who are clean. But let's translate this into our own personal Temple. Who gets to ascend? Who gets to elevate themselves so that they are a mountain of the Lord, so they themselves are a Temple for God? Who gets to channel God in their own lives? Got to have clean hands and a pure heart. Where is our heart? If we don't feel God in our heart, that doesn't mean that God doesn't exist, and it doesn't mean we don't believe, by the way. You could not feel God and still believe. Did you know that? Feelings and beliefs are not the same thing. Because you could feel something and not believe what you feel. You could believe something and not feel it. It is very common for Jewish people, really anybody, to feel to, to believe and not know that you believe and not feel it. You know what the proof is? I mean, how many Jews wake up when tragedies happen and remember their identity? Remember that I'm a proud Jew no matter what. I was talking to somebody earlier. They said, I'll prove to you that there's no such thing as an atheist. She said, um, she was talking to some guy. She says, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. She says, you're a pagan. Like I got all offended. Why does that offend you? I'm not a pagan. You are. This is the definition of paganism. I'm just putting a word to it. I'm just defining it. Why are you getting offended? The real reason why he's getting offended, even though he believes, he feels that he's a pagan, is because he actually does believe in God. He might be um, afraid to admit it emotionally. He might be uncomfortable admitting it intellectually. Right? The Yetzirah works in, in uh, mysterious ways. So we go, going back to what we're saying here, you can believe you can believe in God and not feel it. It requires having clean hands and a good heart. 
a pure heart. Which means if we want to experience our belief, sometimes we just need to realign our heart and hands and, and, and do a little bit of assessment, self-assessment. Are my hands doing what they should be doing? Am I behaving as I should? And my heart, am I passionate about the right things? Am I investing in the right things? Am I investing in why I exist? Or am I investing in what makes my existence just feel good? If I can answer those questions and realign myself a little bit, that's what teshuva is, I can experience belief. My, my favorite analogy from, from Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi, the author of the Tanya, my favorite analogy of his is the moon is shining 100%, sorry, the sun is shining 100% of the time. The sun shines 24-7. The sun will only be seen shining in the daytime, right? At nighttime, you'll only experience the sun through the moon. When you don't see the sun shining on the moon, does that mean the sun's not shining anymore? Right? It's not shining. The sun is gone. We're all going to freeze to death, right? If the, if you don't see this, <laughs> if you don't see the sun shining on the moon, it doesn't mean the sun's not shining anymore. It just means the moon, the moon's in the wrong space, in the wrong place. If we don't feel what we believe, it doesn't mean we don't believe. The soul is trying to shine. It's trying to channel God. It's trying to experience God. But often we're in the wrong place. Like that moon, we just got to move, <laughs> realign ourselves. Clean hands, which means redirect our behavior. A pure heart, redirect our passion and lust, lust and, and, and emotional experience. The last line on the page, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord. Um, you know, you know my feeling with translations. You know how I roll here. So let's let's go to the Hebrew for a second. It's the last few words right after the two dots on the last line. Bottom of 71. You see it? Yisa, he will lift Bracha, blessing, Hashem from God. He will lift blessing from God. That's the literal translation. Um, what else does the word bracha mean? Channel. By lifting himself up and creating himself as a temple for God with clean hands and a pure heart by realigning himself, bracha, he will channel from God. We want to be a channel, a conduit for God. In a world where God may seem absent, in a world that does seem so independent, which was day one of creation, the Sunday, we gotta have a clean heart. We gotta have a clean hands and a pure heart. This is what the Messianic era was all about. This special moment, the Ark being brought into the into the Holy of Holies, was monumental. 
was worth King David writing a whole song about and worth having the Levites sing it weekly. But it's a reminder for us that we can bring the, the Ark into our Holy of Holies. And bottom line, by the way, that's the Torah. The Talmud actually says that these days there is no Beit HaMikdash, but Torah study is our Beit HaMikdash. We take the Ark. We don't have the Ark stored in the Holy of Holies anymore. We bring it with us wherever we go. We bring God into our lives wherever we go. By studying His values, by learning His values, by living His values. I saw a video today. I thought this was wild. There was a lady speaking in the Knesset. You know, with everything going on in Israel. And she gets up. And she says, I used to be very cynical of the religious fanatics, I'm paraphrasing, of the religious fanatics and their talk about the coming of Mashiach. I thought it was like a, just a cute, you know, everybody's waving their flags and talking about Mashiach like it's some fantastical reality. Mashiach is this time period where there's going to be no more war, when there's going to be world peace. When people will recognize the sovereignty of God and live congruent with that because it's a better way of life. It's a truer way of life. So she says, this is what I now choose to believe in. This is what the world needs. And this is what we're essentially recognizing in this prayer. That yes, it's Sunday, meaning the beginning of, I'm using Sunday as a euphemism for the beginning of creation, the start of an in, of what seems like an independent existence. And we're reminded that this world is God's. And we'll experience that by bringing the ark into the Holy of Holies and creating our own emotional, internal Holy of Holies. Okay, friends, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>